Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be talking to the amazing Lara Hopkins. She is multi-talented and extremely knowledgeable in the areas of producing, artist management and recruiting. For over 25 years, she's worked at some of the world's best companies in animation and visual effects, including Anifex, Animal Logic, Rising Sun Pictures, Dr. D Studios, and Framestore. Lara is uniquely placed as she's worked in production for many years. This gives her great insight into how to manage artists, as well as what's required in an artist and a team to build great studios. She now works in Sydney, Australia as a global recruitment consultant working exclusively for Framestore. Thanks very much for coming in and spending some time with us on International Women's Day. Thank you. It's great to be here. First of all, I'm going to ask you some questions for my teaching work. What makes a good CV and cover letter? The best CVs and cover letters are those that are really succinct and clear and straight to the point. I do love seeing a cover letter. It gives you a bit of an intro into somebody before you look at their resume. And ideally, a cover letter will address exactly the job that you're applying to. Give yourself a little bit of time to explain who you are and sign it off very quickly. So I'm talking about two or three paragraphs maximum. And in a cover letter, please avoid talking too much about why it is that you're applying for a job. Like, don't start talking about when I was five, I saw The Lion King, and I love animation so much, and it's inspired me. That sort of stuff is not necessary. You just want it to be really clear and succinct. When it comes to a resume, I really like a one-page resume, if possible. Uh, Often the younger you are, the longer your resume is, which is quite funny, Really, you just want to put the minimal information on there. You don't want to be going into too much detail. You need to know your education history and your work history. I also do like a mission statement on a resume. I find that can sometimes really help, particularly with graduates, because it gives me an idea of what they would really love to be doing in the future. For example, if you're a generalist that has experience across most type of skill sets, You could introduce yourself like that and then say at the end, my goal in the future is to specialise in modelling, for example. I do quite like a mission statement. Not all recruiters do, but I do. And do you think they should rate their software and do you think that they should put their location on the CV? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Location and citizenship is something I always like to see. In terms of rating yourself on the software, it's tricky because I get a lot of resumes from graduates who have relatively little experience that rate themselves as, say, five out of five for Maya, where that is clearly not the case. Yeah. So I think when you're rating yourself, it's kind of a difficult thing to say if you're a graduate because really you can't be five out of five if you haven't had much experience. It may well be better just to list them in order of your confidence. For example, if you know Maya better than Houdini, list Maya first and let the people reviewing your resume and your portfolio decide what level you're at. And you do read the cover letters? Always. 
it's for an administration role, but I've actually just gone through and deleted anyone that didn't have one. Wow. Without even looking at their resume. Well, that's scary. So it is important to have a cover letter. Yeah. What makes a good portfolio and showreel website? If all of the information is in one place, it is a dream for a recruiter. I do really love it if I can just look at a website, there's a reel on there, there's individual projects listed and shown, there's breakdowns listed under each project so you know exactly what that person has done, there's a resume, there's a mission statement and there's a way to contact somebody. Websites these days being so easy to make yourself, everybody should probably try and have a very simple one. Um, I'm also happy to look at reels of course on Vimeo or any other kind of streaming work, that's fine as well. Um, And I do really like the use of Instagram, particularly for personal projects and listing the Instagram personal projects on your website as well is a really nice way of just rounding out your your work experience and your personal projects as well. And even though the work's really rough and not succinct on Instagram, is that okay? Well, it depends what you put up there. Obviously, you choose what you want to show on your Instagram account according to whether you think it's going to demonstrate what you can do. I wouldn't be putting up rough work if you're not happy with it. You could also do a blog. Some people do it like a work in progress blog, which particularly when things like effects, you can sort of get a feeling for something that's work in progress. But I think if you're trying to show finished work, your personal project should look cool. And your LinkedIn should be pretty sharp and to the point, yeah? Always. LinkedIn, of course, is your first port of call for something professional. That's where you should really have all of your social media sites listed as well as your resume. LinkedIn is where you put your photo. I don't like photos on resumes. It's not necessary. LinkedIn is good for that. Get a headshot done. Pay a bit of money to have something done that looks professional and avoid putting up photos of you downing a schooner of beer or at a party or something. LinkedIn should be where you're showing your professional face. Yeah. And on your LinkedIn, have your resume that looks similar to the resume that you actually show. And also in the contact section, list all of your portfolios and websites so that recruiters can actually headhunt you easily and have all of the information in one place without having to search for you somewhere else. Do you look for like who people are just by finding them on social media or those sort of things? I don't. We have a lot of candidates that come to us at Framestore. So it's probably slightly different than if you were working for a smaller studio that might not have the volume of candidates that we have that apply to us. But I also headhunt, but I headhunt primarily through LinkedIn yep. and not so much in social media. It could be a failing of mine. Maybe I should be. <laughs> if you look at really good groups, you can learn a lot about people by what they're saying in those groups. Oh, you can, absolutely. That's probably something I do after I'm looking at hiring someone. Yeah. I will do searches for their names to see if there's anything there that is good or bad. So you Google them just to check them out. That's fascinating. Basically, if you have a hobby of fire eating or something like that, that's a bit left of centre, would you be restricting that from your social media? Fire eating, I think, is fine. Yeah. I have had, at times, candidates where I've done a Google search on them in during the hiring process, and I've found YouTube videos that they've uploaded like five, six, seven years ago, and they're a bit silly and a bit strange. Yeah. My advice would be for anyone actively looking for a job is to actually just Google yourself and see what you come up with, because there might be stuff online that you did when you were at uni that you don't necessarily want a recruiter or a company to see and just delete it. 
Yeah. But you should be mindful of yeah of anything that's online. I wouldn't be judging somebody, but I think if you've put something a bit dumb online that's a little bit questionable, it just makes you question the decision-making process of, of a candidate if they don't worry that something's online that's a bit not great. Yeah. It is worth being careful about what's online about you. What advice would you have for people who want to work overseas? So you have to have a thirst for travel. That's pretty essential because moving overseas and working, it can be hard work and challenging at times. So you really want to have that love of it to get through the initial feeling of being a bit disoriented by living in another country. So I think that is very essential that you have to have a bit of a thirst for adventure. Secondly, I think for anybody from Australia to really test your skills and to really focus on your career, a move overseas can be extremely beneficial, mainly due to the different types and the broader range of work and companies that are out there, particularly in big hubs like London or Canada. You probably will find you'll work on a broader type of work and you'll have more opportunities and then you can always come home. But I do think it is a really good way to kind of fast track your career. I went overseas and I actually thought that my career went backwards. Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't work for everyone. But in saying that, I look back at those two years that I had overseas and the skills that I actually learned in that really crappy job really paid off later on. I'm still using some of them today. And just the experience of living in Canada for two years was awesome. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I do think that that's a massive part of working overseas is the life experience you gain from challenging yourself to that point of not only your personal life being quite challenged, having to find a house, having to find a job, having to work out how to pay your bills combined with the work challenges means at the end of it, as a person, you've grown a lot. So it's not maybe just about work, right? Yeah. And so visas and those sort of things, do you think about those? Like Canada and England would be better for visas? Yeah. So of course, the very first thing anyone should do before they're thinking about moving is think about what their visa challenges will be. It's getting increasingly more difficult over the last five years even to get visas for overseas. There is a slight shift in the world, as we know, with the political situation as it is. And who knows what Brexit will bring as well. But in general, if you're under 35, Canada is a good place for a working holiday visa and under 31 for the UK. And if you've got experience, usually you would want to be mid to senior before a company will sponsor you. But that also obviously another option is to get a sponsored visa from the company if you've got the experience to be able to get a job offer. And do you find that those sponsored visas work well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we hire an awful lot of people on a sponsored visa. Um, They can be time consuming and tricky to get. But once you've got it, you then are often on a path to citizenship if you want to in the country that you're in, depending on the country. The U.S. is the hardest place to get a working visa. Oh, well, when we applied for the U.S., it was after September 11, and we couldn't even get a meeting at the consulate. And then after six months of trying to get one, we applied for Canada, and we had it in four weeks. Absolutely. The U.S., there's no option for a graduate unless you've studied there. If you've studied in in the U.S., after you've finished, you get a visa that allows you to work anywhere for about 18 months. So that's quite a good thing for those graduates. But then after 18 months, you need to find someone to sponsor you, which is now quite hard. 
um, Canada and the UK and Europe are probably a lot easier for people. Especially if you've got family from Europe. Yeah. I want to move on now to promoting yourself inside a studio. How do you promote yourself and move up within the studio? Going the extra mile to impress, being extremely open to any opportunity that anyone gives you, not being jobs worthy. And by that, I mean, if something that seems like a junior thing needs to be done, don't sit there and wait for someone else to do it. Just solve the problem and get moving and do it yourself. Um, Obviously, creating good relationships with the supervisors around you is key because they will be the ones who recommend you to go on to another project in a different role if they're impressed with your attitude. Obviously, the work is important. You have to produce the work and impress people on that front, but it's only part of it. Attitude is a massive part of impressing people in a studio. Now I want to talk about negotiating with employees. How do you go about negotiating payment and amounts with people who are coming in for a job? It's a good thing to talk about because I think everybody, including me, finds it quite hard to negotiate their salary. Yeah. It brings a lot of emotion to the table, which is sometimes makes it very difficult for people to feel okay about that conversation. It can be an awkward conversation. From my point of view, having done it so many times now, I think of it as a business exchange And I think that's useful for the person applying for the job to think of it as well. Ultimately, most roles have a salary budget. When I'm hiring for somebody, I'll be probably write a job description or work with the person on job description. We'll post it. We'll do the interviews. And from the get-go, there will be a a budget attached to that role. And it's usually within, say, it's like 60 to 80,000, for example. And if we decide on a candidate that has slightly less experience, we'll probably look at trying to hit the lower end, but there'll always be an upper range of salary budget. So if I'm offering a job to someone, I will often actually just tell them what I'd like to offer them. I won't ask them for expectations because most people seem to think it's a good idea to whack 10 or 20% on top of their existing salary or their expectation. But I just have a budget to work with and it either will work or it won't. But you don't, do you put that in the ad? No, we don't usually. Yeah. When people go in, should they have a number in their mind that they want? It probably depends a bit on the role. I think if you're junior, you should be pretty open to that number. If you're senior, you probably already know what it will take to make you move because you've got a mortgage and family and whatever expenses that you have to cover. If I am hiring somebody and I have a suspicion that their salary expectations will be higher than the budget I have, I actually have that conversation sometimes even before the interviews begin so that candidates are going in knowing what my budget is and we know if it's even worth going down that path. And if there's a candidate that I think is particularly good and perfect, I can then start going to management before we've even interviewed to say, hey, do you reckon there's any leeway on this budget because I've got a great person and I don't think I'm going to get them for the budget that we've got. So I guess what I'm saying is there's always a a bit of movement there on budgets, but ultimately companies will have a budget that they're working to. It's not a personal thing that they're trying to rip somebody off and every company is a business. So there are some restrictions about how much they can pay according to what their revenue is and what their bottom line is looking like. Trying not to take it as a personal insult or an awkward conversation and just think of it as a business exchange is the best way for candidates to sort of go into a negotiation. 
when I was employing people in a team and you would ask them how much they want and then they would say less than what we had. I could just imagine in my mind walking out of the meeting and the manager who was above me just saying, woohoo, which happened multiple times. And the other comedy of it all is that I've noticed that students who go in first job, if they don't say an amount, they get the minimum. I've been advising them to have a five to $8,000 lift on that and say that's what they want. It has been working. From my experience of hiring graduates, once you're in, your salary goes up really quickly if you're good. In the first five to eight years of anyone's career, you'll have more salary increases and go up higher than any other time in your career sometimes. So for me, my advice for graduates, if it's your first role, you just want to get in the door. And if it means a two or three grand less than you would like, just take it and prove yourself. And if you don't like it, keep looking for another job, but at least you're working somewhere and gaining experience. That's true. The other thing that shocks me a little bit is the actual price of what they pay graduates these days. When I had my second job, it was $50,000, my second job. How long ago was that? 2001. That's quite high because like, that's, that's more than what probably graduates are being paid now. It does show the, the change in the industry. I think the margins are a lot less now than they ever have been before. It just wasn't the people. Yeah. There wasn't the yeah, people yeah, yeah. back then. Yeah. Like there was it's me true. and I and not many others. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely true. There's a lot more people now and people's, um, you know, clients' expectations are a lot higher than they ever were. You know, everybody's eyes have tuned into high-end work and that's what they want. Any advice on what not to do in negotiation? I wouldn't start talking about salary until you've had your interview. Have the interview, focus on the job, focus on what you can bring to the company, focus on your enthusiasm and passion. And then once that has finished, wait for them to contact you or contact them to then talk about money in a separate conversation to the interview. I always tell candidates have some excellent questions about the job and the company at hand for the interview, but please don't go straight to salary. Good advice. So now I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about you. What movies, magazines or books inspired you when you were growing up? The first thing that comes to mind has to be Star Wars, which is a very cliched and of course that's what you would say, but I remember seeing that film when I was living in Adelaide in Hindley Street Cinemas with my brother and then I think we saw it seven times that year or something and I can't deny that that film and obviously the first Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi had probably the biggest effect on me in terms of absolutely loving filmmaking. Not that I sat there and thought I want to work in that industry but I just loved it and still do and still can watch them over and over. So I do think that those films had a big impact on me. Have your children enjoyed them as well? Yeah, they have, but probably not as much as me. <laughs> no, it's an outrage. Like I'm always building up to the excitement of the next one. There's a really amazing exhibition at the Powerhouse, a Star Wars exhibition. And I took my brother and I took our two sons and they walked through in 15 minutes and wanted to leave. And Matthew and I stayed for two and a half hours. <laughs> It's great. When did you discover film and visual effects and how did you become passionate about it? So after I finished my degree, which was a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Studies, there was a lot of film theory and a lot of gazing at black and white film noir films, which I loved. 
But as I finished that degree, I knew without a doubt that I wanted to work in some kind of filmmaking or television. I also knew that my skills were organisational, so I was very clear that I wanted to be in production. In January, after I finished my degree, there was an ad in the the newspaper, which is how it worked back in uh, 1991, um, for a production assistant. (laughs) And that production assistant role happened to be at a stop motion animation studio called Anifex. And I have to say, it was sheer luck that I got that job. There were 500 applicants or something, and somehow I managed to worm my way in there. And I stayed there for five years, and that's where I think I really had my apprenticeship in animation. We worked in stop motion, we did cell animation, we had live action, I live action production managed shoots, I organised the post-production. It was the most fantastic experience and I stayed as a production assistant and then finally left and I think I was an assistant producer. But I think it is interesting to know that I was in a pretty junior role for five years and looking back 30 years later or so, God, It was the best time of my life. I would do that job again in a hurry. I I miss it. And so really that's around the time that digital effects started to come into – Jurassic Park was around that time. So I left there and then moved into digital after that. Clay animation, that was a slow process back then. I imagine they had the big motion cameras. Motion control rigs. Yeah. Was that – is there any similarities between the work that was happening there and making high-end visual effects? They're both obviously very creative. The physicality of stop motion is just amazing. You have to have the patience. I mean, you have to have patience in visual effects as well. I and mean, if you're a compositor working on your hundredth version of a three-second shot, there is that sort of element of patience that I think anyone working in animation and visual effects have to have. The thing about that stop motion time is that we were shooting on film and we might shoot, say, two seconds of footage and then I would take a can of film to the airport to be sent to Melbourne to be processed and telecineed and then they would overnight bag it back. So if you've shot two seconds of footage, two days later you're looking at a tape with your shot on there and if there's a massive technical issue, you've got to do it again. It was and still is extremely time consuming. Obviously now they're shooting digitally and they can check shots straight afterwards instead of having to wait for film to be processed. But I do quite love that kind of idea of just how long it took to make a 30-second commercial and how you had to wait so long to actually see the footage and how it's looking. Moving on from your clay animation days, what have you done in your career from then to now? So I knew that I wanted to move on after five years as heartbreaking as that was because I loved that company. So I got on a plane and flew to Sydney and made appointments with as many companies as I could who were involved in some form of animation. And I ended up getting offered a job at a company called Extro Design that was focused on broadcast design. So I moved to Sydney. And then after six months or so, I was offered a job at Animal Logic going in to be an assistant producer there. And once again, that was a friend of a friend and it kind of taps into the more people you know, the more chances that you'll have of being offered roles. So I stayed at Animal Logic in a production role. I was a producer for about three years and that was a really cool time in, in animation, which we probably can talk about later. My husband then was offered a job in Hong Kong. So we packed our bags and moved to Hong Kong for his job. And I worked at an advertising agency, Saatchi and Saatchi. 
And then we went on holidays to London. So I did the, once again, found a friend of a friend who was a producer at Frame Store and had lunch with her. And that led on to an interview and another interview and a job offer. Uh, so we decided to move to London from Hong Kong to work at Frame Store. So that was the start of a very long and wonderful time working at a company that I just really do adore. I worked in advertising as a senior producer for a few years and then I moved into a talent management role in the feature film side, managing CG artists and comp artists. So that was the time in my life where I had a baby and I decided to move into a less demanding role um, out of production into talent management. We then moved back to Australia. I managed the Rising Sun Pictures office in Sydney for a couple of years. I then moved on to Dr. D Studios where I led the recruitment effort for Happy Feet 2. Uh, when that wound up, I talked to Framestore again in the thought that maybe I could work remotely for them somehow and they somehow convinced my family and I to pack our bags to go to New York for six months, which we did. It was an adventure and we stayed for two years and then we moved back to Australia and we thought I'd try working remotely for them for six months and six years later I'm still working remotely for Framestore from Sydney. So how many years were you producing and how many years were you artist talent and then how many years were you recruitment? I was producing for about eight years. In total, I was probably, say, 14 years in production in various roles. And then, yeah, I guess another 12, 14 years in, I would say, artist management and recruitment are very linked. When I was the artist manager at Framestore in my first role, I was also recruiting. So I think the two go hand in hand. Over the years, which projects have you enjoyed and you thought were the most successful? As time goes on, it's a lot less about the projects and much more about the teams that you assemble, regardless of what it is that they're working on for me. So for me, the things that I'm most proud of, of some of the teams I've pulled together when they've worked and they've worked really well and they've gelled. The most overwhelming amount of recruitment I've done was for Dr. D Studios on Happy Feet 2, where we had the seemingly insurmountable challenge of hiring about 800 people in sort of six to eight months. The sheer volume of that was just insane. And we managed to do it. And not only that, despite the fact that that film was incredibly challenged and people worked extremely hard, there's an incredible amount of feedback I've received over the years since of people saying, that was one of the best teams and films I've worked on. And I think that's a testament to everybody involved. But it is pretty amazing to think that you can pull together a team of a thousand people and people worked in a very big hot shed for, and produced a film under very trying circumstances and still walk out of there with a spring in their step. So that that's pretty cool. And I think the other thing that for me was a sort of personal joy was going to New York with my family, uh, my kids who were uh, four and eight at the time, yep. um, and helping them set up a small team of about 40 to 50 people in New York for The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, yep. which I actually wasn't sure if I would like, but I did. I loved it, which I was pleased about, but it wasn't actually the project that makes me happy. It was the team. We had a, a great range of people that I'd worked with over a few years and we flew in a lot of people international people into New York and the team itself worked really well it was great it wasn't a bad movie no it was a good movie feel good movie what were the hardest things that you had to learn to progress your career 
after about five to eight years, you think you know kind of everything. I think there's a sharp rise in ego around that time where you you really feel like you know everything. And you kind of have to work through that because a few years later, all of a sudden you realize that there's still a whole lot more to learn. When I was at Animal Logic as a producer, I thought I was pretty damn good. And then I moved to Framestore and I realized that there were so many people with so much more experience who were so much better at work than I was and I had a lot to learn still. And I'm glad I went through that process because I think it really means that you keep progressing in your knowledge and your career. The second hardest thing is having kids and figuring out how you can juggle your home responsibilities and keep up with your career. That's a challenge that I think is quite hard. And on International Women's Day, I think it is something that we all should be talking about because there's no doubt that that is a quite a challenge for a lot of men and women. But unfortunately, usually the women find it the hardest. As you know, me and my wife, we both are career people and that we're struggling with that. You can't have two high-firing careers at the same time, both work full-time and have children. It just is almost impossible. So my husband and I did that in New York for about a year. We both worked full-time and had two kids. And that was, from a career point of view, probably one of the most challenging and fun times of my life. But from a home point of view, the most agonizing. Yeah. And it was very hard. I, I know what bad parenting is now. I've done it. I was absent for my children's first four years. Although my wife picked up the slack, if you both work full time and are both absent, then it makes your children not as good as what they could have been. I'd like to move on now to your early career. And when we were talking about Animal Logic before, you were doing TVCs. It was before they started film. Is that correct? That is right. When I was at Animal Logic, at that point, they were most known for their high-end TV commercials, their post-production and their animation work. And it was around the time that they also started to work in episodic television on a project called Farscape. And The Matrix was also in their early days as well. So film was starting to become a part of what they were offering. And I worked in their original studios in Crow's Nest um, around the time that they then moved into Fox. So I was there in the very early days. And what did you learn in that period? It was an amazing time to work in CG and post-production. I think back to those days and think it was a bit like the Wild West. I would be bidding and quoting for commercials with the CG artists and the comp artists and we'd be sort of going, well, how long will that take? Well, we have no idea how we're going to do that, so let's just put this figure in. It was a very challenging time because sometimes you'd pull them off and the artists who at that point were mostly generalists, they would somehow figure out a way of doing things and it would look great and it would go through fine. And then there were other times where we'd be there all night and it was quite agonising. I also was the main producer at Animal Logic that did a lot of the Japanese commercials. I think that was because I was um, I loved the cultural exchange. I really enjoyed working with clients who were speaking in another language and having an interpreter and having creative ideas that were aesthetically very different to what we would normally do. So that was a, a really fun and dynamic time to be working at Animal Logic. So you left Animal Logic and then you went and worked overseas. What was it like? So the first place we moved was Hong Kong, which was obviously a culturally 
amazing place to move to. And I worked in an ad agency at Saatchi and Saatchi, uh, which was the first time I'd worked on the client side. And I think it's probably safe to say that I am the worst ever agency producer because every time I was asked to get in some quotes to do some work, they would ask me to ask production companies to do it for much less than they'd ask. And I'd say, no, but they need that. They need that money to do that. No, I can't possibly go back and ask them to drop their quotes by 50%. So I was always out there batting for the production companies instead of fighting for the agency. Uh, but it was a really good way to understand a different way of working. And it kind of taps into your long-term career that, as we were talking about before, sometimes you might take a slight sidestep and it's not great at the time, but what you learn from that stays with you, even if it's just to find out that that's not your thing it's worth it. So then we moved to London and London obviously culturally was a lot more in line with Australia but still had its challenges I guess getting used to a different country and quite cold weather but it was good. I've got to go back to that part about you being the client. I was on the client side for a while and it was outrageous to me. They would just say let's make it lower, let's get a better number and then I had to try and make it work. I found it very interesting to see what happens on the other side everyone should try and see that. Often what they're trying to achieve is slightly different to you. They don't care about the quality as much as you do and they just have a budget and their budget is like lower than what it costs. I was in a meeting once with a client and with the agency and they were presenting their ideas for some TV commercials and I'd had them completely budgeted. And I can't remember what the figure was. The clients said to me directly, we love the ideas, that's exactly what we want to do, but we want to pay 10% of what you've said it will cost to make. 10%. And I remember this feeling of pressure as the ad agency creators and account services people just all looked at me, wanting me to go, yes, I can do that. And I said, well, no, you can't do that. And I think that was kind of the end of my career as an agency producer. <laughs> So after London, you then moved back to Australia and worked at Rising Sun managing their studio for a few years. And then you went to Dr. D. Could you tell us what it was like working with George Miller? Working with George Miller was an absolute pleasure. In fact, I remember in my first week, he held an entire team meeting on the steps of the Metro Theatre. And it was the first time ever, really, that I'd worked for a director as opposed to the directors coming in as clients. So it had a different feel to a regular animation or visual effects studio. He sat down and sort of held forth and it was time for questions. You could ask him about anything. You could ask him about making Mad Max. You could ask him about filmmaking in general. It was like a masterclass in filmmaking and it was an absolutely amazing experience. It was really before we'd really hit the ground running in production on Happy Feet 2, but he constructed a very open and encouraging and creative environment there that I've never seen again. And what were the challenges in like putting that team together of 800 people? We were trying to build a team in Australia and there weren't enough artists in Australia that they needed. Secondly, the schedule for that film changed a few times. We thought we had more time then we ended up having to make it. The story process took a long time. We sort of hoped that the delivery of the film would be delayed by a year and unfortunately it wasn't. So we went from thinking that we needed to hire 800 people over 
a year to needing to have them all in place within six months. That was the biggest recruitment team I've had. I had two other recruiters and two recruitment assistants. We had some logistical physicality issues in that we had to move from the Metro Theatre into Carriage Works. The Carriage Works, uh, which is a big old tram shed in, in Sydney, in the inner city, it really was a shed that had birds flying around in it. It had a leaky roof. We had a motion capture studio set up in there and if it rained, it was diabolical because you would have to turn off the power because there was literally water like streaming down the walls. So we moved a thousand people into this massive big tram shed. In summer, it was hot. We had massive big industrial fans blowing on everyone. And in, in winter, it was absolutely freezing. And we bought everybody these things called snuggles. I think that's what they were called, which is basically like a blanket that you can wear over your head that's the only way we could work in there. So there were physical issues with the building on top of the actual issues of finding and flying in so many artists from overseas and convincing them to come to Sydney, which, as it turns out, was probably the easiest part. People were interested in, in living in Sydney for the experience of living in Sydney. So let's now talk about Framestore. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of Framestore, your experiences there over the years and the culture? So Framestore started in 1986 and many of those founding group that started Framestore are still working in management of the company and ownership of the company. In visual effects is actually quite rare and it's absolutely amazing that the people that opened it are still working in the business. And that gives it a company culture that is slightly different to other large studios that might have other companies that own them and have had a sort of revolving door of managers working in there. That consistency is really great. I'll give you a quick overview of the company. London is where the company started and it's by far our biggest office. There's 1,500 people that work in London and they work across all of the type of content that we produce, feature films, episodic, traditional commercials, colour, design, immersive content, theme park rides, AR and VR. We opened in New York in 2004. That was our first office outside of London. And that office now has about 80 people. And the main focus of New York is in advertising. Um, We also have offices in Chicago and LA. We have a big office in Montreal, somewhere around 600 people. And in Montreal, the main focus is on feature film work that they share with London. And we also have a small VR development team in Montreal as well. We also have a small office in Beijing and an office in Pune in India with about 800 people. Wow, it's mega. It's mega. And is people moving from place to place? Like if you're in London, can you move to another place? Yeah, that's one of the most amazing things about working at Framestore. People do move around between the offices and a lot of the new offices were opened by uh, staff members from either London or another office. And I think that is actually how we've managed to grow the company across so many offices, but keep a sense of culture that's similar between them. And I was very lucky to be involved in opening the Montreal, Chicago and LA offices. It's been a great experience to think carefully about how to assemble a team that is going to keep the culture of frame store alive with its local differences, of course. I've heard that people have long careers at Framestore. What's the culture like that would encourage people to stay there that long? 
when people ask me about the culture of Framestore, I often say it's quite British in feeling. And by that, I mean people that work at Framestore tend to be nice and they tend to be polite. People that are really aggressive, I don't think particularly work at Framestore. The culture is sort of one of mutual respect. No matter what challenges we have, of course, there's vigorous discussions. But on the whole, the most successful people that work there are just really nice, friendly people. The other thing about Framestore, which I think is absolutely amazing, is that people tend to come and stay for a really long time. Our global managing director of film, Fiona Walkinshaw, was a receptionist in the 80s and she's been with the company her whole career. We've got people that started in in runner roles or in the machine room in paint and roto or tracking that have ended up becoming creative directors. So it is a place where people do usually find their careers grow and they stay for a long time. Do you have any tips on recruiting for small studio owners and people who are building projects or teams? Recruitment for small companies is quite challenging because you generally don't have uh, enough time or people there to focus just on recruitment because it does take a bit of infrastructure to recruit. Obviously, having a database and a way to track people and a way to find skill sets is something that probably only larger companies do. I would recommend small companies... For somebody in in the office who's ambitious and smart, you know, maybe it's a PA or a receptionist, have them take recruitment under their wings so that they're making sure that everybody gets a reply and that all the resumes are stored somewhere where they can be found again and looked at again. Keep a list of resumes saved in skill set of people who have caught your eye. A lot of finding a job is about timing but it's a shame to think that people are missing out because they haven't sent in their resume to a small company just at the time when they need someone. And what happens if you then ring them up, they say, I'm working somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I often contact people that I've liked their resumes from like a year or so ago, and if they've worked somewhere else, that's fine. But at least I'm looking at somebody who I thought was great at the time. Do you tell them that you're looking for someone like them? Or? Yeah, f- absolutely. If I if there's a if there's somebody that I like that I've say interviewed before or seen their resume and I didn't have a role at the time, I'll always contact them again to see if they're interested in talking to me about a role. So, what are the best methods and techniques for recruiting people that you would recommend? Do spend some time networking and meeting with people. I think passive recruitment, and by that I mean somebody sends in their resume or they're real, they look good, you don't have a role, but meet them anyway for a coffee. Just relying on putting an ad and finding the right person is one way of doing it, but the best way is actually just to have an ongoing list of people that you're talking to, and then when you have the work or have the role, you're ready to actually just hire them rather than having to search from the get-go. Would you recommend using LinkedIn and like building folders of people that they like on LinkedIn, doing research to find people that way? Yeah, I do that. If you have a recruiter's LinkedIn, it doesn't cost that much per month. You can create folders and track people like that. But you can also just use a spreadsheet if you don't want to pay the money. So now I want to ask you about jobs of the future or jobs that didn't exist recently. What new positions and skills are becoming required in the industry? The biggest change I've seen over the last few years is that now that we're working in a lot of immersive new technology projects, we're looking for people that have actually experience in games and real-time technology. It's such a different workflow to visual effects and such a different way of approaching a project that we really need people that have had that experience of going through a game life cycle. And one of the challenges 
for me is finding people who are happy to move out of games into visual effects because often games artists are on a project for four or five years and they want to be on that project and it's visual effects isn't particularly interesting to them. So it is quite challenging hiring people with those skill sets. Cool. And what about programmers and technology people? We're often looking for uh, real-time engine programmers or creative technologists who have that ability to work across both traditional visual effects programs as well as new technology. And that's probably the area that is the hardest to find. I mean, we have a recruitment database of 70,000 candidates and not many games artists who have that background are interested or know about Framestore. We actually have to start marketing ourselves to a completely different group of people to attract people's attention about the kind of work we're doing in that area. And that's the AR, VR people? Yeah, correct. Yep. And, and what about in visual effects? So I think if visual effects artists want to be looking towards the future, it would be really to be thinking about the kind of skills that they can learn or look into that do involve real-time technology. That will probably be the way the industry is moving towards and having those skills or at least an awareness or an interest in sort of some real-time rendering processes is a good idea and understanding also the games process is a good way of rounding out your visual effects knowledge. Cool. Do you think that young artists should focus on being a generalist or do you think they should be multidisciplined? To a certain extent, that probably depends what kind of job they're looking for and what kind of work they want to be focusing on. If they want to work in film visual effects, having a very specific skill set is a really good idea because most film visual effects teams work very much across specific skills. You might be working just in creature effects and that's what you do for a whole year is just shots on creature effects or effects or lighting or whatever. If you want to work in commercials or something that's a bit broader, having a generalist mindset is really probably useful because they tend to have smaller teams of generalists rather than people with just one specific skill set and no other. So I suppose in recruiting, success is someone who has a long career and is really valuable in the company. Could you give us some examples of the best artists that you've recruited who've gone on to have great careers? The first person that comes to mind, actually, I didn't hire him, but he was part of my team when I was a manager at Framestore in London in the early 2000s. His name is Theo Jones. He was a very clever young technical director who I managed to convince to move to New York to help set up our New York office there. He didn't want to go. He really did not want to move to New York. And somehow I managed to convince him after quite a few conversations. And he ended up staying in New York and being a massive part of that office for, I think, about uh, 10 years. And he ended up being the head of CG there. He headed up the uh, film department hiring. He worked on commercials. He worked on films. He also headed up probably one of our most well-known and most awarded VR experiences, the Mars Bus. And then he moved back to London uh, to work in our film uh, team again and was the uh, supervisor on Christopher Robin. So only two weeks ago, um, he was in LA because he was nominated for an Oscar. He is somebody whose career is amazing. And even if he didn't go to New York, he would have done amazing things. I was just really happy. Those few conversations I had where I encouraged him to sort of take that leap to New York has meant that he's had a huge impact on Framestore and has had a wealth of amazing experiences across all the type of content that we produce. 
So your daily decisions change people's lives. I actually even have a few weddings under my belt (laughs) because in the US, it's very difficult to get visas for partners if you're not married. And I think there's at least two sets of couples that have had to kind of say, "Uh, are you thinking about getting married sometime? Because that will make your life a whole lot easier. I mean, I think that's the thing as a recruiter. It's not just the role. You get to know the person. You know, one of the first things I ask people when they're talking about moving overseas is what's your personal situation? Have you got a partner? Have you got kids? How, you know, how is that going to work for you? Because there's no point in somebody moving overseas if their home life is going to be really difficult and challenging. It has to kind of work for everybody. I do tend to get to know my candidates quite well and quite intimately. Let's move on to leadership, which I think is pretty important in the industry at the moment. What do you think are the best ways to train and educate people to become good leaders? I think the word training is key because in most of the companies I've worked in, we haven't trained people enough when they've progressed through their careers. The rough and tumble of production often doesn't leave much time for soft skills and training. We might train people in software and hardware and whatever else they need to know. But when it comes to leadership skills, that's sometimes often that people just think if you're really good at your job, you inherently have the ability to become a leader. And a lot of people do. And there are some amazing supervisors that you know, seem to have this ability to lead and give feedback and mentor their artists and be amazing leaders. But some really struggle and it's not something I think that you can just assume that people have. So ultimately, I do think that providing new leaders with mentors within the company to allow them to sort of talk through some of the challenges that they're having and to support supervisors with good artist managers and good producers who can talk to them about how their team are going and try and figure out ways of getting the best out of your team. Because I do think that quite often somebody might be underperforming in a team and often we make the mistake of just saying, well, they're not very good. Let's just not hire them again or let's just move them away without actually properly figuring out what's going on. So do you think that like young people who want to lead should go and do courses themselves or people who want to run studio should do their own courses to improve themselves? If I was interviewing somebody who was junior and they'd taken the initiative to do some leadership courses themselves, I'd be pretty impressed because clearly that's something that they want to do. I don't know which courses would be best. I would like to see all creative companies probably thinking a little bit more about the kind of skills that they can help their supervisors with. If you're on a project for 18 months, there's not much time there to be spending a weekend retreat talking about leadership. And it's a shame because I do think it would really help some of our leaders. I also think it could help some of our potential leaders to be thinking about it before they're even in that position. Well, I do think that you would have more time if you had better leaders. That's a good point. And I know I did multiple leadership courses when I was running my own studio, usually only a week or two days. But although I didn't find all of it helpful, there was definitely things in there like organisation and things that made me change the way I was running my studio. I think probably one of the most significant things that people who are in leadership positions could have help with is in giving feedback. The feedback cycle is such a big part of what we do in animation and visual effects and it's not easy to give negative feedback and give it to somebody in a way that makes them feel positive and able to do something instead of completely deflated. Our supervisors are all amazing and they're all very good at that but it is something to think about. 
What do you think makes good positive feedback? It's taking the emotion out of it. There's always that whole blend of this bit is good, this bit we need to work on a little bit more. And if you're talking about a non-shot scenario, if you're talking about an issue with somebody's performance that's going over a period of time, I think often it's easier and less confronting for people to make a note for somebody's annual review to say eight months ago when you were on that project, this and this and this happened. Whereas actually we should be giving people regular feedback and the minute something happens that isn't quite right or somebody's concerned about making the time to have that conversation because a 10 minute conversation with somebody at the start of something going a little bit wrong can really avoid people really going into a bad place. The best people who led me would give me continuous positive feedback and be really passionate about my growth and the work that I was doing. After all that, they made you feel really great and then they would tell you something that wasn't right and tell you how to correct it. All that positive feedback gave them a lot of credibility. You need to be seeing feedback as a way to improve your skills as opposed to a personal attack. Oh, it, it's hard. It's hard. Any tips on how to improve artist performance? Uh, one thing in our industry which I, I'm always impressed with artists about is that a lot of artists' progression is based on things that they've learnt themselves. Um, it's not a very formal place where all of a sudden you're told, okay, now we're going to learn how to use this particular package. So much of what artists do is based on their own personal training that they're sorting out things themselves, which suits people who really like problem solving and self-directed learning, I think. So I think self-directed learning and being curious about their skill set is really key. In terms of attitude, that's everything for me. It's how to come to work with a positive outlook and an ability to problem solve and work with others is something that should be encouraged and, and applauded. Now, these are tricky for most people. And in business, a lot of people don't like doing these sort of things. But what makes a good performance review? I think you have to have trust and a relationship with the person before you're walking into that room. I've read somewhere in a management book that people shouldn't manage probably more than about 10 people at a time because it actually means that you will know those people. I've sat in about 100 performance reviews and obviously I did not know those people that well. So I think thinking about how to structure your performance reviews that you're sitting with somebody that really does know you and is involved with you day by day is really, really important because not only are you sitting in a room where you feel comfortable with somebody, but also after the review, you can actually tap into things that were discussed and see them in action in their day-to-day -day work that they do. Because I think that it's quite scary when you go into a performance review. Performance reviews are really hard for everybody, but they can also be incredibly important to help steer somebody's career. So on International Women's Day, I thought it'd be really great to talk about women in the workforce and explore the issues that are facing women in industry. So the first question I have for you on this is, what do you think the percentage of women working in the industry are? Frame stores are probably a reasonably good place to give you a bit of a reflection of the whole industry, I think. It's a big company. And actually, every single office has about 70% men and 30% women. I don't have the stats of what percentage are artists versus production or administration, but I hazard a guess to say if we've got 
30% women, I would say that 15 to 20% of those probably are production or administrative roles. So that gives you a little bit of insight into a pretty big imbalance in artists of men to women. Now there's a lot of women coming through the university. All the university visits I've done recently have shown 50-50, sometimes more women than men studying in animation and visual effects and design, which is hugely encouraging because obviously that's a big step forward and those figures should in theory start ciphering through to team makeups being different. I do think though at the supervisory level, we have a very few amount of women visual effects supervisors or women heads of departments. And that's something as an industry we need to address. Yeah. And I think that mentorship, bringing women together to talk about like how they're progressing in the industry and supporting young artists is really the key. Because often, like if I was talking to someone last night, there's a hundred or so people in the company and there's like 30 women and they're all spread out. They're not even together. There's barriers between those women talking about how to progress their career and those sort of things as well. I do think it's important for women to be talking to each other, but I equally think it's important for men to be mindful of the gender diversity of their teams and for men in leadership positions to perhaps be thinking about what they can be doing to encourage their women, juniors and mid-level people in their teams to encourage them to go through and keep working upwards. I think that probably it's fair to say that in general there's a lot of discussion about women feeling that they're not going to put themselves forward for leadership positions because they don't think that they have all the skills they need. There's a lot of evidence across all industries that men will see a job description and they can do 60% of it and they'll apply for it and say, yes, I can do all of this. And women will look at a job description and say, oh, well, there's 40% I'm not really sure of, so I better not apply for it. You could say the same within visual effects teams that women may not put themselves forward as much as they should do and back themselves. And I think we need some help there from the male supervisors to really help women focus on continuing to progress their careers. Why do you think there's less women managers and also the companies are owned by less women? One of our founding members was a woman at Framestore. When it comes to ownership of studios, 30 years ago, animation and visual effects was seen as a very technically driven and very geeky kind of industry, which at that point probably attracted more men than women, are seeing a lot of encouragement for girls to be studying in STEM subjects and sort of demystifying the idea that this is something that they can't do. And that should hopefully help to improve things as things go through. Do you think that women face unique challenges in their career working in the industry? I do, and it's the elephant in the room. There are women in their 30s that have children and that is usually when their careers start to take a sidestep. Our industry is very demanding and our deadlines are, are always compressed and as a supervisor you're often working 12, 14, 16 hours a day and I can't really see a way around that. It's quite sad really because really you have to dedicate so much time to really doing that job. For women who have children who don't have a wife at home, and by wife I mean a man or a partner who's helping them and willing to take the back seat, it becomes very difficult to take on those supervisory roles.
Have you ever been discriminated against or treated differently because you're a woman? I don't think so, no. I've made decisions about my career which has been influenced by the fact that I've become a mother and that has meant that I've maybe taken a different role maybe than I would have had I not had children. I'm not sad about that because I've managed to stay in the industry. I'm doing something that I absolutely love and I think we're all going to work a long time. There's probably 10 years in your life as a woman if you are taking most responsibility for the children where you may well end up doing a small part of what you might want to end up doing but then you can always go back and pick it up later. As you know I'm presently working like part-time and voluntary and doing less work and my wife has now taken up the full-time role at a senior position and she is having her career blooming in the second part of her life after 40. So it is possible to switch. Yeah. It's just you've got to have a willing partner who wants to do that. It's not just about women's careers, it's about men's careers and providing them with the opportunity to do exactly what you're doing and for that not to affect them if they want to go back in and then ramp up again. Yeah. It's a, it, We have to look at men's careers and women's careers in order to help men and women both have an ability to combine being parents and work in an industry that they love. And throughout your career, have you actually seen any discrimination that you could point out where you think that people are treated not as good because they are women? I don't think men actively sit there and think, I don't want to hire a woman, but I'm always very keen to make sure I have an even blend of candidates in front of supervisors and that that kind of unconscious bias doesn't kind of creep in. Sometimes women aren't thought of first for a promotion. I think that can sometimes happen. Yeah, well, I I think that I have unconscious bias. I employed people who are just like me. I even employed someone who went to the same university as me because I thought that was cool. Yeah, there's definite evidence that if all of your decision makers in a company are men, they will often be looking for people just like themselves. I think the answer is, is that we've got to get more women in senior roles. It really is. Yeah. So I think that there is other elements that are not just kids. It's hard to reverse roles. There's cultural elements like the fact that I'm picking up and dropping off the kids. I'm the only man there. There are also mental barriers that people have. Annabelle Crabb has written a great book called The Wife Drought, which really looks at the issue that many senior people who are in management positions in Australia, most of them have wives at home looking after the logistics of running a house and looking after children. And most of the women in leadership roles don't. It's a great book and it's a great point, is that basically the men have to become the supporter. And our culture needs to support men that do that. And the men who are supported are usually the most successful. Yeah. The ones who yes. have Most of the people I know who have been really successful have wives at home who are either working part-time or not working at all. Yeah. And, and they're pretty much supporting all their needs to have a great career. What are the real effects that having kids affected your career? The biggest effect is that you just have less time in the day. Yeah. I couldn't stay at work until nine o'clock at night because I needed to leave at five to pick up my kid by 5.30 from childcare. And the effect of that really is that I work much more efficiently than I have ever worked in the eight hours or so a day that I'm working. I button down, I don't have lunch, I work through and I get the same amount of work done. I worked anywhere between two, three, four and five days a week. 
between maybe four and five, there's no difference. Between three and five, there's a small difference. But I do think that parents who have a restricted amount of hours that they can work, work incredibly efficiently and that makes up for the time that they're not at work. And a cultural shift in thinking that just because you're at work until 10 o'clock at night means you're amazing, it's not necessarily true. And the other important thing I grab from that is that I have a deadline of a certain time where I've got to leave to pick up the kids and every day you have a deadline and you're pushing towards it, it actually makes you more efficient. It makes you focus. You're not going to sit around and have an hour and a half for lunch or just have a conversation for half an hour about how your dogs are or what the latest movie is that you've seen because you just really have that looming deadline that's hanging over you. You just burn through the work. And, and not to mention the pressure of calls during the day where you've got to go and do something or sick children and all those things. Can I just say one more thing about that? The other thing that changed after having children is that it put everything in perspective about what is important. And that was a good thing because instead of feeling like the whole world was going to cave in if we didn't deliver a project or if somebody I was hiring didn't come through or if I had someone two weeks late, I took that very seriously, probably too seriously. So I think actually having children has meant that I can work longer because I won't be burnt out because ultimately if my kids are safe and happy, that's the main thing. And when I'm feeling very stressed about something to do with work, I don't feel the pressure that I did before because I've got it in perspective of a broader life experience. Excellent. Any advice to give to young women who want to have a career and be successful and want to have children? Firstly, be kind to yourself. It's possible to do both, but don't worry if it feels like for a few years you're treading water or doing something that seems maybe a little bit more junior than you wanted. Just keep working in some capacity. I think the most important thing is to do two days a week if you can and have time with your children if that's what you want to do, but don't give up completely because I think the hardest thing for women having children is if you give up completely and you've been at home for five to 10 years, re-entering the workforce, particularly in the industry that we work that has huge technical advancements and you just find it very difficult to get back in. So you need to kind of keep in in some way in order to pick up your career again when you're ready and run again really hard. Both I would add to that is probably try and find a good husband or a good partner and talk to them early before you have kids, about what the expectations are and try and find out what their thoughts are on the matter. There's absolutely no doubt about it. If you have a partner who's supportive of your career, it will make a massive difference to you as a parent. And did you read The Wife Drought by Annabelle Crabb? Yes, I did. I read it too. I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to understand this issue more and why society is what it is and it's really interesting. The thing that is so brilliant about that book is that it's not some kind of attack on men. It's basically looking at parents as a whole and how men can have more time with their children and women can have more support. The part that I found fascinating was that it looks at culture and why the culture is there. Yeah, it's it's really good. And it's sort of funny too. So let's wrap it up with inspiration. Where do you look for inspiration? So I look for inspiration from 
all of the artists that I've met that have this incredible passion for creating beautiful images. It sounds like a cliche, but I, if I see someone's reel that has some beautiful work on there, I just find it amazing. And when I speak to artists from all levels, regardless of whether they're graduates or they're supervisors, their passion and commitment to stories and to the work that they do is extraordinary because to succeed in this industry, you have to have such drive and such passion that you'll never succeed without it. That's the most inspiring thing. And what do you want to do in the future? Well, I'm very happy focusing on talent and all things people-related. I'm quite interested in remote working, having done it for six years. Um, And I've noticed recently that there's more and more really interesting artists that are working remotely. It's challenging for many projects, particularly high-end feature films and some branding work. The security required means that that's not possible, but there must be other types of work where that could work. Because I think that the days of creating massively large teams in very expensive cities that provide such challenges for people in their day-to-day life in terms of commuting and living expenses and cost of living means that it would be wonderful to think that we could start working in this creative industry and allow people to work where they want to live. As soon as it becomes cheaper to make them remote, they will work out that security problem. Quite possibly. But yeah, I I work remote and I have to say I love it, but sometimes I get a bit cabin fever. And that's actually probably what I'm interested in is in the future maybe coming up with a way of creating a group of people who can inspire each other, even if they're not working together, to support each other in their remote working so that you do have contact with other people that you're not isolated. I don't feel isolated even though I'm working in Sydney and every single other person in Framestore is working in the Northern Hemisphere because I talk to people all the time just on a hangout or on a video conference works really well but I do think that remote working is quite an interesting concept. Cool all right well that's a great place to leave it I have to say we've done well on International Women's Day I think we covered that in depth I've really enjoyed having this conversation and thanks for taking the time to fly down to Melbourne for it I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure and I must say it's absolutely lovely to have questions asked of me instead of me doing all the asking. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Lara on her LinkedIn page. And you can check out Framestore at framestore.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is a motion. Bye-bye.